This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan from AJ Bell and Shares and with me is Tom from AJ Bell. Hello. So if you're interested in getting more from your savings and investments, this is the podcast for you. Today's episode looks at the latest events on the stock market, all the important bits from Rishi Sunak's spending review. And Tom's going to answer a very important question on pensions from one of our listeners. That's right, Dan. We've also got a fantastic interview with Stuart Widowson, who is the fund manager of Odyssean Investment Trust. Four of his portfolio holdings have received takeover offers in the past year. So we wanted to find out how he managed to spot these bid targets before the deals happened. But first up, it's time for Dan to run us through the week's events on the market. So Dan, what's been going on? Well, it's quite good. The US market doing very well. The Dow is traded above or closed above 30,000 for the first ever time. The FTSE 100 is up nearly 16% since late October. Although that's still well below the levels at the start of the year. It's, it's, you know, essentially stocks in the last few weeks are really picking up. And that in part is down to the vaccine hopes. So we've now had three companies come out, say they've got successful vaccines and they're just waiting for the regulators to approve them. So what's well, quite interesting reactions though to the, each vaccine news. So they've all come out on three consecutive Mondays. The first time we had Pfizer come out and then the, the FTSE all share was up nearly 5% on that news. The markets around the world were very excited. Then the following week we had Moderna come out with its vaccine news Market's reaction was less excited. We still had a 1.7% jump, which is, you know, on relative terms is, is, is good. But the money has just gone. We had AstraZeneca come out and, and the markets just didn't move at all. Mm. Very strange. Actually, Astra's share price itself fell. And I wonder if people are a bit disappointed that it only had 70% um, effectiveness in its trial versus sort of 90% plus for the other two. Mm. But, but I think overall, though, you know, it, it's making people more hopeful that, companies can start to recover and life can get back to normal. And I, I think that's that's very powerful. And obviously you've had comments from Donald Trump um, finally talking about uh, or sort of implying a smoother transition for the US presidency to, to Joe yeah. Biden, because I think a lot of people were worried about sort of disruption in the sort of the, the coming weeks and, uh, you know, up until January. So if you combine that with a potentially smooth transition with the vaccine hopes and, and also the oil price has been rallying very hard as well. So that's a, an economic bellwether. So for oil prices going up, definitely get the sense that that's, a, that's great optimism about the economic outlook. So all of those really is sort of a, a driving positive sentiment in the markets. And, and you're seeing this ongoing rotation from va- uh, to value stocks from growth. So and we've, we've touched on this before in the podcast, mm-hmm. but for those who aren't quite sure about it, it, essentially for most of this year, investors have been happy to sort of pay a higher price for companies that are still growing through the pandemic. Um, and now what they're doing is they're looking at sort of the beaten up ones and saying, well, if the economic prospects are picking up, then surely I, I don't have to pay a higher price to buy growth anymore. I can go and buy these beaten up stocks and still get some earnings, potentially get some earnings growth from them. So you've seen real big 
hitters and successful companies like Games Workshop fall nearly 20% in the last sort of couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, it, it, on the flip side, you've seen sort of beaten up pub stocks rising sort of about 70%. Cine World's actually doubled in price since the start of November. It's, you know, a real sort of change in what people are buying. And I guess the question is, how long will this trend last? So. Yeah, and those, sure. those those changes broadly, you think, based around the fact that the markets generally are expecting life to return to something that perhaps resembles normal, in inverted commas, more than we've experienced in the last six to nine months. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, what they're saying is that the companies like the pub companies were trading has been completely disrupted. They're now saying, well, you've got a greater chance of getting back on track. And yes, it might take two, three years to, to rebuild those earnings to pre-COVID levels. Um, the fact that we're not perhaps worried like we were a couple of months ago about whether you're going to survive, it's now about when you know we're looking to the future and when could you possibly start to see earnings pick up. So that, I mean, the, the stock market is very much forward-looking. That's really mm. important to always remember as an investor. It's all about what might happen in the future. And so um, optimism is definitely the word of the week in terms of market sentiment. Oh my god! I can't remember the last time I was on the podcast, and the word of the week was anything even close to optimism. No. This is what a, what a time to be alive. I mean, have you have you have you started to make any any plans for for next year, Dan? Yeah, any sort of tentative social plans or plans to go on holiday or anything like that? Are you still are you still not, hanging not, fire? Not yet. I've had a few sort of messages with mates and sort of mm. saying, you know, where we used to sort of share about information about events and we used to like just joke and say oh of course that's never can happen but now it's like yeah. Ooh, actually you know might this actually happen how about you tom yeah one or, one or two one or two irons in the fire so i think i might have mentioned before that i'm uh, i've got a long held plan to go to australia to watch the cricket so to watch the ashes in uh that'll be in december december 2021 so obviously there was a long period of time where that way was getting to the point where even that was starting to feel like it was potentially going to come under threat so planning for that is now well underway um, there's some sporting events which are hopefully going to be coming up later next year again some cricket based ones which it feels possible that I might be able to go to now and also the 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 Selby wedding may well go ahead in 2021 as well but oh, crikey. haven't uh, haven't made any formal replans for that yet so it was supposed to be happening God, it was supposed to be happening actually in in less than two weeks' time, but obviously it's not. Uh, so ho- hopefully, maybe the same time next year. I'll obviously keep you keep you posted. Well, it's okay. don't don't worry about it, Tom because I read I'll read the announcement in the newspapers. When, um, <laughs> so it's it's fine when you when you're ready to make that big big confirmation. So I mean, other stuff on the market is it's quite interesting that there's a couple of the stocks which have done really well this year. Mm. Um, not particularly highly priced, but um, just generally done well with their trading is AO and Pets at Home. Now, both of those saw quite big share price falls this week, despite reporting sort of quite decent figures. And uh, I think it's just down to a mixture of profit taking. AO's done fantastically. Um, and one could argue it's, you know, it's still got fairly decent prospects, certainly while we're sort of, all sort of still perhaps at home for, for the coming months. Um, you know, if you, if you take the view that this uh, you know these restrictions society might actually be around till, till just after Easter. So it's still, still a while yet for... 
um, these sort of lockdown beneficiaries. But Pets at Home was saying no profit growth this year. So I think perhaps the market didn't like that. And the other story that caught my eye was um, media company Futures has made a takeover offer for the owner of Go Compare, GoCo. Okay. Um, so I think that's Futures known as a, as a magazine publisher. You might think, well, what on earth is it doing wanting to buy an insurance comparison website? But um, there is there is logic to this one, actually. So it's, it, Future likes to um, seek acquisitions where it would buy, it's historically it's been buying um, publishing websites. And so, for example, if you if you type into Google, um, you know, I want, a, I want a new TV and you might click on um, the first result. It might be like, here, here's my, our top 10 recommendations for TVs for this month. And you'd read the reviews and say, oh, that sounds quite good. And you click the link and you, you go and buy it. Well, Future might own one of those websites and it would get um, a commission payment or, or, or marketing affiliate fee for driving traffic. And so essentially, that's what Go can go compare does as well isn't it you, mm. you just look at it and say show me some prices for insurance and i'll go and buy one of them um and it does broadband and other as sort of energy stuff as well but the, the stock market did not like the news and that's strange because i thought that there seemed to be quite a good logic parking those two companies together but future share price was down 12 percent on the news oh which wow is, yeah, so the market's saying we do not think that's a good move. So let's see how it goes because it's paying in a mixture of shares and cash. So automatically, by future share price falling, it means go compare um, shareholders or GoCo, GoCo as it should be officially called, GoCo shareholders will be getting a sort of a worse deal. So uh, yeah, one to watch actually that one. So um, so otherwise, we've had the spending review from yeah. Rishi Sunak. So that's just happened just before we record this podcast. Quite a lot um, of bits in there to sort of get your head around. So Tom, talk us through the sort of the key points then. Yeah, yeah. as you say, fresh from scrabbling through some of the very, very detailed and very in-depth documents that come alongside um, the spending review statement that Rishi Sunak gave um, earlier today. So into a few headline headline announcements that people might read about. So increasing the national living wage by 2.2% and it's going to be payable a little bit earlier. So by age 23 rather than age 25 at the moment. Also some uh, expected announcements around public sector pay freezes. So Rishi Sunak very keen to make sure that um, while there is pay restraint in the public sector, he he's going to ensure that those on um, lower earnings and particularly people in the NHS aren't going to be too badly affected by that. Um, also a long trailed reduction in the amount that the UK pays in overseas aid. So that's going down from 0.7% of national income to 0.5% of national income. They say they plan to reverse that decision at some point, but that point in time is not yet being um, set out. But probably worth saying that the spending review isn't a budget. So while we've had a few of these little announcements that we're expecting, this is really setting out the overall picture of the public finances and the amount of money that different departments are going to get. And so while you have a few of these little announcements, really the the big story from today is the fiscal position that the country's facing on the back of, of course, the coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent uh, lockdown of the of the UK economy. So these numbers, I've said before, these numbers always make my eyes pop out, but the UK, the UK is going to borrow £394 billion over the course of this financial year. That's 19% of GDP, the highest level of borrowing in peacetime history. 
Um, the UK economy shrunk by 11.1% in 2020. There were some predictions about how the UK economy might bounce back over the coming years. So the Office for Budget Responsibility um, expecting a bounce back next year of just over far over 6%, and then the year after of just over 5%. So some improvements of where we are now, but the Chancellor very clear that things are going to be difficult for a long period of time. And in fact, at the end of this parliament, there's a good chance that um, we're not the economy is not going to be as big as it was at the start of this parliament, which clearly is usually the way that these things go. And so I think the, the main message, certainly that I took um, from uh, from the spending review was something that we already knew, but something that gets rammed home when you see these new figures on, uh, on on debt increasing, on borrowing increasing, on unemployment rising as well, is that the the difficult times uh, financially certainly are yet to come. So at the start of his statement, uh, Rishi Sunak said there's light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the COVID vaccine, but the economic emergency hasn't started yet. And so what we're seeing here, I think, is the, the government laying the ground for the fact that there are going to have to be some difficult choices. Um, The government said it doesn't want to return to austerity, so to reducing public spending drastically. In fact, it it, it mentioned uh, increasing the amount of departments are going to be getting over the next few years. And that means if you're going to balance the books, then they're going to have to look at raising money via tax revenues one way or another. So I think that's just one that People are going to have to keep an eye out for for next year. Some some difficult decisions to to come, I suspect, at the budget whenever that comes round. Yeah, I mean, there was a few bits in the spending review that caught my eye. Which, you know, if you, if you're a stock picker and you're looking for sectors that might benefit from what Mr. Sunak was saying, I mean, of course, it, it, talking about um, massive infrastructure spend, so so spending money on public services, building new schools, hospitals. Mm. Um, sort of building more prisons and hiring more nurses and police officers. So one could um, draw the conclusion that perhaps outsourcing companies might uh, benefit from work. And um, certainly there's there's plenty of construction companies in the UK on the UK stock market that might get a sort of a slice of that pie. You know, spending on roads and other transport schemes to sort of, le- you know, they use the term level up the regions mm. of um you know, re- reduce the regional disparities of the countries so that that would clearly also benefit some sort of sports services firms um, as well i mean and then you've got sort of a seven billion national house building scheme and, and planning regulations easing so obviously the house builders will love that news as well mm. yeah yeah one and one other um one other point i think to to pull out a document hidden away Within some of the some of the larger spending review documents was around um, the retail prices index. So this is something that um, I've talked previously on the podcast about. So there's, this has been trailed for a long time. The idea of um, replacing the retail price index, which is an old uh, measure for for inflation in the UK, with CPI H, which is a, a version of the consumer prices index, which is the one that's pre- preferred by the UK Statistics Authority. Now, it sounds like a nerdy and technical change, but it will have implications for um, people's uh, investments and people's pensions as well. So the Chancellor's confirmed that RPI will essentially be replaced by CPIH, which tends to be about 0.8 percentage points lower each year than RPI. And that's going to happen from 2030. So in, in 10 years' time. Now, the reason that that will matter to people is because there are certain 
investments that are linked at the moment to RPI. So index linked gilts, for example, uh, rise in line with RPI at the moment. And so once RPI is downgraded, then those increases will reduce in the future. Um, In terms of pensions as well, so anyone at the moment, well, lots of people at the moment who are in receipt of defined benefit pensions, so guaranteed pension incomes, um, will have RPI linked increases written into their contracts. So that'll be part of the agreement they've got with their pension scheme. If uh, when we move, when when RPI is aligned with CPIH, those RPI linked increases won't be as valuable as they are today. So you'll still get an increase in the value of your, your of your pension each year, designed to keep keep up with the rise in general prices in the economy. But that increase is likely to be lower than it would have been previously because of the way that the old RPI measure was calculated. And you'll get the same thing with annuities as well. So people who bought into annuity products that were linked to, to RPI will continue to be linked to an index called RPI, but that RPI will be worth less from 2030 than it is at the moment. The government's been clear. There have been some people who understandably have been asking for compensation for people who had existing contracts who were going to be negatively affected by this. The government couldn't have been clearer in its response to this consultation. There isn't going to be any compensation for people who are negatively affected. So 10 years for any impact to occur. But when it does in 2030, some people will see the value of their the pensions will still increase in value, in value and their investments will still increase in value, but just by a lower amount than it would have done previously. So a couple of weeks ago, we launched a new section answering people's pension questions. And we've had quite a few people get in touch wanting some more help. So thank you very much to those who have been in touch. Uh, just, you know, if you want to test Tom's knowledge, send us any pension related questions to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Just remember, we can't give any investment advice. So please don't make Tom cry by asking if you should buy Bitcoin or shares in Tesla. So, um, Tom, which question have you picked out of the hat this week? Yeah. So, Dan, we have a question from Dan. It's not Ooh. It's not from you, I don't believe. I won't give his surname because I want to protect his identity. So Dan says, um, I'm wondering if you can help explain the difference between a LISA, so a lifetime ISA, and a SIP for younger people when looking at their retirement. I'm maxing out my company pension up to the level they match and would and would like to save some extra for my retirement. I'd be comfortable making the investment decisions myself and have six months saving for day-to-day backup. If deciding between a LISA or a SIP, do the different income tax bands have an effect? What are the differences when looking to draw down later in life and any other considerations that should be made? So first of all, I'd say that Dan, it sounds like Dan is being very sensible. So uh, starting off by maxing out your workplace pension contributions is always a good place to start. So that means you're making the most both of your matched in contribution, match contributions from your employer and from the bonus of pensions tax relief as well. So that's good. The fact that he's got six months fixed expenditure in cash, again, that's good in the, particularly during the pandemic, we've talked about the fact that lots of people didn't have any savings at all in cash. And so when the pandemic hit and they had to take a a drop in income or lost their income altogether. They had nothing else to fall back on to pay the bills and things like that. So that's a good place to start. I'd also say that uh, for Dan or anyone else, you should make sure you've got any high cost debts paid off, so credit card debts and things like that, before you look to save and invest over and above your workplace pension. So getting down to the the lifetime ISA and the SIP. So it's probably worth 
just quickly explaining how the two work, and then we can look at the different considerations for different taxpayers. So the Lifetime ISA, a newish product, so it's been available for the last three years or so. It's aimed squarely at younger people. So you have to be age 30, 18 to 39 in order to apply for a Lifetime ISA. You can pay in up to £4,000 a year, and the government will add a 25% bonus up to £1,000 each year. So that's the same as you get in uh, via basic rate pensions tax relief if you pay into a SIP. And I'll go into how things work in a SIP in a moment. Um, you can keep paying into a Lifetime ISA and receiving the bonus until age 50, and then you can take the money out tax-free from age 60 or for a first home worth £450,000 or less. If you take the money out of a lifetime ISA for any other reason, then you'll face a 20% government, uh, government early withdrawal charge in the current tax year. And from April next year, that's due to rise to, to 25%. So that's how the lifetime ISA works. The self-invested personal pensions are SIPs, so you can contribute up to £40,000 a year, inclusive of tax relief into a SIP, compared to the £4,000 a year you can pay into a, into a lifetime ISA. Um, you get basic rate, rate tax relief automatically, so that's at 20%, so that's the same as the 25% lifetime ISA bonus. You can then claim back an extra 20% if you're a higher rate taxpayer, or 25% if you're an additional rate taxpayer. The money's then available to you from age 55. That's due to rise to age 57 in 2028. 25% of that's tax-free and the rest is taxed in the same way as income. So that's how the two products work. Takes take, takes quite a long time just to explain how the products work, but I think it's important to have that as a, as a kind of foundation. Now, in terms of um, whether or not you'd be better off in a lifetime ISA or a, or a SIP when, when, you're, when you're saving for retirement, it will depend largely on whether or not you're a basic rate taxpayer, higher rate taxpayer, or an additional rate taxpayer. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer and you contribute up to £4,000 into either an ISA or a SIP between the ages of 18 and 50, so those are the, the years where you can contribute into a lifetime ISA and keep getting the government bonus. If you enjoyed similar returns over that period, then Clearly, the bonus you got on the money that you saved would be exactly the same via the lifetime ISA or via the SIP. So the key difference would be how you could withdraw your money. So in a SIP at the moment, you can get that from age 55, but only a quarter of it's tax free and the rest will be taxed in the same way as income. Whereas with a lifetime ISA, you'd have to wait a little bit longer. So you'd have to wait till age 60 to get the money, but the entire amount would be tax free. So uh, the, the other positive thing about ELISA is that while with a pension, your money would be locked up, you can access your money from a lifetime ISA in an emergency, although, I'm, as I mentioned, there'll be an early withdrawal charge to pay. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, then the lifetime ISA could be viable and potentially tra attractive as an alternative to a traditional SIP, the amount of tax you pay, of course, in a SIP will depend on the tax brand you're in when you come to make your withdrawal. So if we think about someone who is making a £20,000 ad hoc withdrawal, so that's where a quarter of the withdrawal from their SIP is tax-free and the rest is taxed in the same way as income. If they did that from age 60, so when you can get your lifetime MISA money out tax-free, so if you made that withdrawal from a SIP, you'd pay £500 in income tax at the moment. If you made that withdrawal from a lifetime ISA at age 60, then you'd pay no tax at all. So you can see that there's a benefit to be had to basic rate taxpayers to choosing a lifetime ISA over 
a SIP for their retirement funds, although obviously there are different restrictions and different rules governing the products. Um, just to quickly round things off, if you're a higher or an additional rate taxpayer, so if your pension contributions are coming out of a salary that's taxed at 40% or 45%, then you're almost certainly going to be better off from a tax perspective and from a financial perspective saving in a SIP. And that's because the upfront bonus that you can get from saving in a SIP is so much higher than it is for a lifetime ISA. So it might be worth just laying that out in terms of pounds and pence. So if you're saving in a lifetime ISA or in a SIP, then you can pay £80 in and that will be topped up to £100 by your scheme. If you're a higher rate taxpayer, then you pay that £80 into the scheme. It'll be topped up to £100, but you can also claim back another £20. And if you're an additional rate taxpayer, you can claim back another £25. So what that means is if you're a higher rate taxpayer, then to get £100 in a pension into a SIP only costs you 60 quid. And to get, and if you're an additional rate taxpayer, to get £100 in a, SIP, in a SIP only costs you 55 quid. So as a result, if you're a higher or an additional rate taxpayer, it's likely that the SIP is going to give you the bigger bang for your book than the lifetime ISA. But if you're a basic rate taxpayer, then it's worth considering the lifetime ISA because you can get that money out tax-free at the end. And the bonus that you get on your money is exactly the same as you get in a SIP. I hope that was clear and not too rambling, Dan. No, that's good. Well, thank Tom. That's incredibly helpful. And um, I'm sure many of our listeners will be very grateful for um, that really, really in-depth information. And I'm hoping that next time I see you, I'm going to ask you to repeat all those words and you're not going to take a sheet of paper. <laughs> next time we meet yeah. at the pub, Dan, I will, I will repeat it word <laughs> for word and you will enjoy every second of it. Yeah, no, it's really good. Really good. And say, if anyone does have any sort of questions that we can really help with on pensions, please do drop us a line at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And now on to this week's big interview featuring Stuart Widdowson from Odyssean Investment Trust, which invests in a concentrated portfolio of UK smaller companies, typically ones too small for inclusion in the FTSE 250 index. Dan talks to Stuart about his success picking stocks that have gone on to receive takeover bids. He chats about the state of the market and goes into detail about why he likes SDL, which is now part of RWS, as well as Clinigen and Volution. Listeners, I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. So, Stuart, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Um, now, I've seen four of your holdings in Odyssean Investment Trust have received takeover offers in the last year. So that's SDL, Consort Medical, Huntsworth and Elementis. So are you deliberately hunting out companies that you think will be bought? I mean, that's an excellent question. We, I mean, we've had four holdings and to put it in perspective, we typically have 20 holdings. And of the 11 years I've been running this strategy to have four of your holdings taken over in a year is very unusual. So look, we don't particularly look for takeover targets, but we think it's an outcome of our process that if companies don't get to their valuation levels in the market, they typically attract buyers. And this is this is um, this is what we think uh, really comes from our private equity mindset of how we try and select stocks. Um, firstly, we you know we care about valuation. We don't want to overpay. We always want to be buying into a company at below its intrinsic value. But secondly, we want a company that's a good company that effectively, is, as you've seen, if, if they have the characteristics that either a trade buyer or a private equity buyer might like, 
And also, more important as well, they don't have the things that those people don't like. So we don't like to invest in companies with poison pills. Um, the final thing that we look for as well as valuation and quality is, is improvement potential. Because we, we want to invest in companies where the market maybe hasn't seen the fact these companies could and should be doing something better, making more profits, you know, uh, having a better return on capital employed. But that's something where a private equity or trade buyer can spot those and think, actually, I can take this company private and still make it better and reduce my my entry price by by improving the operations. And look, uh, you're absolutely right. What What's interested us uh, actually over the last year is out of the four bid approaches we've had, three out of four that have been trade and one's been private equity. And again, that's quite unusual. Yeah. So, so would something like um, with SDL being bought by RWS, it, it, so you that's a. I'm saying that's a. Is that a, an all share deal, wasn't it? So would effectively would you now have RWS in your portfolio and would you keep it longer term? Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. It's a it's an all share deal. Um, we think there are substantial uh, synergies in putting the companies together. And to give you an idea, what, what what it's created is the world's largest provider of translation services and software. And what's a very fragmented market. And, and we always expected to go into the investment in SDL. It, it would participate in consolidation. Um, it's a very good fit. Um, and the uh, I think the stated synergies when they announced the deal were thirteen million pounds. That's what they've been allowed to say by uh, by their auditors. We think the real uh, benefits of putting the two businesses together is significantly higher than that from a cost and efficiency perspective. Potentially up to forty million pounds is is our view, um, which which is obviously much 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 different. I think that also maybe underpins the ability of, of RWS to actually sell more of SDL's technology. So, so SDL's background was more te- technology and probably sort of less, uh, you know, less strong in services, whereas RWS is extremely strong in services and their, their customer bases are very complementary. So um, we think together the business can probably exploit the IP that the SDL's built up and, and produced over many years. So look, um, would we go and buy a two billion market cap company today for the portfolio? No, but um, we still think there's some pretty exciting upside on a medium term view from from being an RWS shareholder. Yeah, what well, it, it, for for those that are taken over in your portfolio and delist, um, you know how how long is your your sort of list of um, potential ideas to sort of fill those gaps? Then clearly you. Would you always want to put something new in, or would you just go and buy more of existing holdings? Uh, look, it, it depends on where we see the opportunities. I mean, to give you an idea, our our cash balance at the moment it is the lowest it's been since we launched, um, and we've not been short of good ideas over the last six months, as you probably imagine. There's scope to add to holdings of the portfolio, um, and uh, we you know we can do that. There's always a bunch of new ideas coming along, um, but you know. To give you an idea, what, what we tend we tend to make four to five new investments a year. So when a takeover happens, it forces you to maybe up the rate of new investments. Um, uh, in, in terms of our existing portfolio, you know we're very happy with what we've got. In fact, Ed and I, you know, there's always things in the portfolio you'd like to move on, but that's probably at a pretty low rate as well at the moment. So yeah, we're happy. We'd we'd buy more of what we've got and probably you know one or two new holdings. Yeah, so I, I was I was watching a presentation the other day with some fund managers, and they were saying uh, they they sort of felt that once, or you know, if if we get a Brexit trade deal, it could give 
foreign companies a bit more confidence about how things might operate in, in the UK and um, how things would work. And therefore, that might make them more confident about making takeovers. So do, I mean, do you, do you think that perhaps in the start of next year, we could see a lot more takeover activity? You know, I, I know you mentioned trade stuff, but thinking perhaps more from foreign companies. I, I think um, look, what's interested us from the Elementus bid is that, I mean, that is a takeover of a foreign company. But Elementus itself is a pretty international business. It it, um, it doesn't actually have that much operations in the, in the UK. But what's happened is that UK equities have been so out of favour because everything's been against it. There's been Brexit, there's been um, uh, COVID, and on top of that, you know, general concerns about the, you know, you know, the US election as well. Um, and I think once Brexit's out of the way, actually, you, you would expect the market to um, to have a relief rally of some kind. The 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 bidders you haven't mentioned are private equity houses. We've been quite surprised actually that uh, there've been not more take private um, approaches for for smaller companies because particularly full risk companies are trading at a significant discount to AIM companies, and and we think there's a lot of mispricing there. So look, in short, we'd expect probably yeah. more M and A next year than less. Okay, so just having a look at other stocks that are in your portfolio, you've got a stake in Clinogen. Um, so I, I went to see them many years ago, and at the time that they were buying drugs from other pharmaceutical companies and, and getting them approved for different use um, and providing access to unlicensed medicines. I was wondering, I, I must confess, I've not looked at the story recently, apart from seeing that they've had a bit of a tough time and suffering from lots of earnings downgrades. What, what would give you the conviction to stick with a company that perhaps might be having a bad patch now? Hmm. Well, the, the fact that it's got negative earnings momentum or has had for some time is one of the reasons why uh, the shares have derated. If, if you know, I've, I've first invested in the company in 2014, and I've I've been in a, in and out over the years because the rating is is so volatile. You know, you can the PE tends to oscillate between 10 times earnings and and 16, 17, 18 times earnings. Um, we think the the opportunity at the moment is it's on a, a, a low rating compared with history on earnings that we think actually are about to significantly improve over the next three years. And on top of that, you know, the market's concerned about the level of gearing. Um, we think the, the company is very cash generative and that gearing will come down substantially over the next 18 months. So there's, that you know, earnings are, we think are going to improve significantly and on top of that, debt's going to come down. And that's probably going to cause a reassessment to the company. Um, it's it was one of the new investments we we made actually right at the end of March. Uh, I think we we started buying shares i think when it was on a ford p of eight which we thought was just ridiculous given the quality of the company and it was really pricing in a lot of bad news um it's it's an interesting case study because although as a healthcare company its earnings are more resilient than say an industrial or a consumer company it was still impacted negatively by covid because as, as you know it's involved in supplying products for clinical trials and a lot of those clinical trials were were delayed or, or put off during the COVID crisis. Now that business will come back. Um, the second thing that we think will will help earnings is is really around Foscovir, which is one of their um, one of the drugs they bought some time ago, which they've reinvigorated. The market's been concerned about a generic launching for Foscovir for some time, um, but to date, there's been no evidence that. Uh, that the uh, uh, potential alternative product has actually made any sales. And yet the market's been discounting um, Foscovir's earnings falling materially. 
So we think that won't be as bad as the market thinks. Um, the other thing is is around the new products that they've been adding over the last couple of years, um, particularly um, uh, the the ProLukin product. And we expect that the earnings from that product will, um, well, the, the growth of that product will start to come through quite in a quite interesting way over the next eighteen months as well. Um, so, so there's lots of things, and Irwin A's as well, where they announced still quite recently. We expect earnings to start to improve uh, as that product gets traction within eighteen months as well. So, there's lots of things there that think actually. The, the, the downside is probably too pessimistic and there's significant earnings upside over a three-year basis, which is just not in the share price. Um, you mentioned it's quite a complicated business. We think that investors struggle because really there are three quite different business units there. Um, if you look at private market transactions, the sort of the, the multiples that private equity companies pay for these assets, you know, there's a company called Covis in in, in Europe that was, was bought by private equity um, last year. Uh, you know, this company is substantially undervalued, we think, compared with the ratings that other people and the, the multiples that other people put on these companies. So quite difficult to see how you lose money from here. I'll caveat that, that <laughs> there's always the unknowns, but uh, we think it's we think it's one of the most attractively valued companies in, in our portfolio, given the growth prospects. Excellent. So a- another one that caught my eye in your portfolio was Volution. Um, so, and this is to, to me. This is this is a really interesting business. I, I, you know, I, I see it as um, you know the the COVID crisis is is making people much more aware of the importance of having sort of good quality ventilation in buildings. Um, but I, I've also come across people who say, well, actually, look, this is a business with declining operating margins and volatile profit levels. So, you know, we've got clear uh, pros and cons here. You know. What's your attraction in it? Yeah, so um, I mean, the first point about uh, medium to long-term growth drivers, uh, look, to some extent, they were already there because of legislation that was coming in. Um, you know, I think the, uh, you know, if you look at legislation coming out of uh, New Zealand, effectively, um, ventilation systems are going to be mandated. And then in terms of the, the government's ambitions for, um for uh, emissions from from houses um, uh, uh, or emission sites from houses by 2050, it's likely that the only way you get there is putting mechanical heat recovery systems in in in, in virtually every house, um, and they do that not just you know the bathroom fans that that everybody knows and for in the ducting they actually do these these heat recovery systems. So unusually in the building product sector, this is a company we think's got really interesting medium to long term structural and regulatory driven growth i think covid's interesting as, as you've highlighted because good ventilation is clearly something that um that people focus on as helping reduce the the transmission of, of the virus as well so i think that's that's all that's almost been a, a small catalyst to what was going on already um you talked a bit about the margins i mean we we looked at this business and, and you look at the history it's done a number of acquisitions over the years and typically it's got a pretty good model of buying companies uh, that are uh, typically owner managed or quite you know, um, small national champions, but where um, particularly around Europe and and and, the, and uh, Australasia, but these companies typically are you know they're, they're making reasonable profits, but they're not making as much profits as they could do, and the guys are pretty good operationally, so so they'll typically go in um, and help improve gross margins through better sourcing, improve manufacturing, and the like. 
So, so we think that the company, you know, the company's talked about a target of making twenty percent operating margin. We think that's very possible, and in fact, actually, given what it does, we we think there's probably upside to that. The other headwinds they've had, which we think were bait, uh, firstly, they've done a factory consolidation uh, over the last eighteen months um, involving their Reading facility, and that, to be fair, and that that ran over and cost them more money than they thought. But all the benefits of the efficiencies that's going to drive hadn't really dropped through into numbers yet, and we expect that will do in the current financial year. The second thing is their their public sector business in the UK. Um, they're the UK market leader. Um, that business has had quite uh, muted demand from the from um, from public sector clients over the last um, few years. And that's been a real headwind on growth, but also headwind on margin because it's it's typically among the more profitable business that they do. We expect that that business to actually that part of the business to start to improve and again that's going to have quite a material impact on 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 uh, the group margins as well so in summary um margins we think are going to inflect upwards demand is going to improve as well um and it has a really you know, really interesting uh, uh prospects for the next three to five years the, the other thing we haven't talked about is, is pricing as well um we think that uh you know, when you, as a as a purchaser of these fans myself, it typically costs more to get the electrician to come and put them in your house than it than it does actually the unit. And and frankly, most people don't have any idea whether or not they're paying thirty pounds for a basic fan or seventy pounds for a, a fan that that's a quiet fan. And uh, they've got some really interesting products um, that they've been developing, and there's real scope to upsell people. In fact, we're working to change all our fans in our house. We've got three of them. To quiet fans because it's just so much nicer and frankly for the cost of it it's 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 a good investment so we think there's a lot more they could be doing to stimulate growth and actually upsell people excellent so i mean just generally i'd look your share price of addition has been picking up quite a bit recently and the market in general seems to be going up are you feeling quite positive about sort of the outlook for next year now um i think Look, we, we don't make short-term predictions, and for us, a year is, is short-term. We, The way we tend to look at companies is what sort of returns do we think we can get over three to five years. And Ed, Ed my colleague, and I are, are very optimistic about the returns we can see from, from the portfolio over the next three to five years. You know, we, we target 15% annualized return for each investment, and we have a, a very high proportion of our portfolio that, that we think it has the potential to materially exceed that. So, um, yeah, we're, we're optimistic. Um, we think the portfolio is in good shape. Uh, we talked about the takeover of Alimentus earlier. We think that the, the revised bid that's out this morning um, still significantly undervalues the business. Um, and we still see yeah, there's a lot of upside there. So, and, and frankly, there's a number of other companies in the portfolio that, that we think are still trading on very large discounts, their takeover valuations. So, yeah, we're very much uh, optimistic um, um, on a on a three to five year view. Who knows what happens in the short term in markets because that's life. But uh, but we definitely got ourselves full. Great, Stuart. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. So that's all we've got time for this week. As always, it would be great if you could leave a review of the podcast, particularly on the Apple platform. And just a reminder, we've now plugged into Amazon Music. How exciting. So if you've got one of those fancy smart speakers like Alexa, I do not have one of those, but maybe I should invest in one. Um, You can now access the podcast by saying, play money and markets podcast. What a world we live in. Thanks very (laughs) much for listening and I'll see you again soon. 
Thanks. See you later. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.